Jesse, so you're back from the big gender conference in Denver? Yeah, I did a conference to reveal my gender, uh, downtown Denver. Uh, gamer. <laughs> gamer. Yeah, I got, uh, I'm still in DC now. I'm not back to New York yet. So my, this in, very long trip isn't over, but I went to the Genspect conference in Denver, uh, which is interesting because I also went to the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine conference in New York. There's just like a lot going on right now among folks who, hold the opinion, uh, which we know from previous conversations is extremely bigoted, that there's some questions about the efficacy of youth gender medicine. So these are two groups trying to sort of become central players in research and advocacy on those questions. Well, it also seems like there's a lot going on on Twitter in response to at least the GenSpec conference. Have you seen the drama over uh, the self-proclaimed AGP who wore a dress to the conference? Yes. This is not like I figured there'd be Twitter drama. I, I was surprised the direction it went. Phil Lilly wrote a book about autogynophilia. You know what? Should we save this for the preview? Yeah, we should save this for the preview. It's 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 an interesting story. Um, I hung out with the AGP in question. He, I liked him a lot. We had interesting conversations. Hey, hey you're, you're giving it away for free. Okay, that's it. That's all I'll say. But yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this on preview. It's very good pre primo content. But um, yeah, I was grateful I got to attend these conferences and meet people. And there's a lot more to discuss on that front in the future. But uh, not today. Not today, Satan. Katie, what is the name of this increasingly teasing podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single, and today we've got some stuff to talk about. Uh, you've got a story about, do I have this right, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Something like that, Buffy the Pretend Vampire Slayer. Okay, and then uh, we're also going to talk about Jasmine Hughes, uh, a talented young writer who left the New York Times Magazine over political differences. Um, I should quickly say before we get into that, I solicited listeners' opinions about the Israel-Gaza thing. I was basically just like, I think a lot of civilians are dying. I'd be curious to hear from folks who think that like there's good reasons for this or it'll end in a good place. I got a lot of emails, some of them very thoughtful. I'll figure out some way to like, you know, either post a text post on Barpod or we could talk about it a little bit. I just haven't had time to fully go through them because some of them were like really long and, and really thoughtful. But I just wanted to acknowledge and thank people who sent those in because – um you know, I think once I really put my mind to it, I think I can solve this conflict, especially if you help, Katie. Hey, uh, speaking of conflicts, can we, before we get started, can I complain about something really fast? Mm, really fast. It doesn't sound like you, but I'll just this once. Okay, so last night was the Country Music Awards. I assume that you attended? Yeah, of course. Wearing your biggest, biggest cowboy hat? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Luke Combs, the guy, the, the guy who covered Fast Car, the Tracy Chapman song, he won Song of the Year. Uh, he won Appropriation of the Year. Yes. I was looking at Facebook last night and there was a robust conversation on my Facebook page because a guy posted about something about oh how uh, this like straight white guy won this award for his cover of Fast Car. And this I decided not to engage on this because I just don't want to get into a Facebook fight because it's not 2016. Tracy Chapman won three Grammys for that song in 1989. The idea that, that Tracy Chapman was not credited or rewarded for writing this fantastic song is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it made me so fucking annoyed about this. There were all these these people commenting on this about how like how like this says something about the world that this guy won a CMA, this white guy won a CMA when Tracy Chapman didn't she didn't write a country song. Did we even, she won three Grammys. When there was that awful Washington Post article, did we even end up I feel like we considered talking about it on the podcast this would have been like July ish. 
Right. But it was like too stupid for even us to touch. Right. Too stupid. And she has so so the Washington Post article, I don't remember who wrote it, but the gist of it was what was the gist of it actually, Jesse? Maybe I blocked it out. It, it, no, it was in search of a gist. It like cherry picked <laughs> scholars who like because there's now a huge reservoir of scholars you can call up academics. I shouldn't call them scholars. You can call up for ridiculous quotes. And it was like mm-hmm. trying to problematize the fact that even though Tracy Chapman A became massively world famous for this beautiful, incredible song, and she had no problem with the cover. She liked mm-hmm. the cover. She was happy for his success. No, she loved it. This post article yeah. tried to figure out what the problem was because there had to be a problem just because I guess a black person and a white person were involved. And it was – I think we briefly talked about doing a segment on it. I briefly thought of like doing something in my newsletter, but it was just so stupid. It felt like bait, but unfortunately post uh, published in the Washington Post. So, But then you go and you get advice on Facebook about this. Why? No, I didn't. I did not get in a fight. I decided I, I like had my comment all typed out. I was going to say something about just like asking questions. Why is this problematic that he won this award? She won three Grammys for this in 1989, a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, that'd be very productive. Yeah. yeah, but I just decided, you know, instead of getting into a fight on Facebook with somebody I haven't seen in 12 years, I'm going to just save it for the podcast. I think it was a very mature move of me. I think so. I like the, I do like the idea of an appropriation award where he comes up on stage and wins it and they put a big black wig on his head. <laughs> he whips out the blackface. You know, Tracy Chapman, she's an older, I think that she's an old school lesbian. My guess, and I, and this is sort of an informed guess because I have heard, I heard something about her. I heard, I, I heard something once. It's an informed guess. I heard something from someone who met her that she is not woke. Let's just put it that way. I won't go into the details, but I have heard that she has some complaints about college students. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I, again, we don't, that's not particularly well sourced, but <laughs> I think it's not for nothing that she doesn't appear to have ever discussed her sexuality, right? That would very much suggest. Oh, no, she hasn't. I don't think she has. She's she is a dyke though. No, I know, but like that there's like a I was uh, there's disagreement over how much people should forefront their identities and how much of a part of like their art it is if they're an artist. She does not seem like someone who's like, "Look at me, the queer singer." She's just a brilliant musician who does not and I'm not saying there's a right answer or a wrong answer, but it's weird that this became this kind of controversy because she's not the kind of artist who would have participated in a controversy like this, I don't think. I think she probably is living on a farm uh, in Vermont somewhere tending to mini cows. The quiet the quiet gay life just seems so dignified. The quiet straight life is just like video games and masturbation. The quiet gay life always involves crafting or farming or yeah. Lots of soups, sweater sweaters. Lots did you say lots of soups? Yeah, soups. We eat soups. <laughs> While wearing sweaters, you eat soups, you process. Word, I, I think I learned that from you. Yeah. Right, is this enough? Should we move on? Let's move on. You want to talk about Jasmine right. Hughes, another uh, not-so-public lesbian or possibly public lesbian? I did. I was trying to do some biographical research on her today for reasons that will become apparent shortly, and I did find this sentence in one of those websites that are clearly written by an AI bot or somebody who uh, speaks English as a third or fourth language. Jasmine is openly gay and is currently in a romantic relationship with a lovely and hardworking partner whose identity is unknown. Over five years have passed since the pair started dating. No idea if that's true or not. Yes. Let's talk about Jasmine Hughes. So 
Katie, tell everyone who Jasmine Hughes is. So Jasmine Hughes, she's a writer who recently resigned from the New York Times Magazine after signing a letter in support of Palestine in the Israel-Hamas conflict. And then she later said she'd been forced out. So Jesse, how familiar are you with her work? Somewhat. So I actually overlapped with her at New York Magazine when I was there. And I, I think she was basically pretty close to getting started. She must have been in her like basically early 20s. Like I didn't interact with her much just because of mm-hmm. sort of the office's layout and uh, – it was funny. Like Science of Us was sort of this nerdy own thing, and there were like much cooler and hipper people. Um, and they, I'm bu- they bullied so me. Surprised. They bullied me relentlessly. No, they, it was yeah, fine. That uh, explains a lot. No, she seemed perfectly nice. I I haven't read much of her stuff just because it's sort of outside of my wheelhouse, and I've sucked at expanding my reading horizons. But she does a lot of like culture stuff and like really funny celebrity profiles and stuff, right? Yeah, she's a really good writer. She does a lot of arts and culture stories. Her most recent piece was an article about picking up trash, which I enjoyed because I do pick up trash, although I do it because my wife forces me to. And there was this sort of funny element to it because the whole thing, and this will, I think, tell you a little bit about her politics. The whole thing is about gentrification and how her neighborhood in Brooklyn has changed and all these new people move there. And I totally get that. I am a a nymphy at heart. I don't like change. I don't like things in my front yard. But she is also a gentrifier. Like, she's black, so she might not look like what most people think of as a gentrifier. But she's not from there. She's from New Haven. She went to Connecticut College, which costs $60,000 a year. She's in, at least until last week, she was a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. She is a gentrifier. Um, so just, I mean, just because New Haven is like a poor city. So you could be from New Haven and be poor and then like get a scholarship. Con College is one of those sort of fancy New England liberal arts schools that like, well, I think it might have more of a hippie-ish reputation, but it's definitely for like rich kids. Like a lot of kids from my hometown went there. Um, I, I love when we get into class territory because I have to pretend I myself am from a humble working class potato farming background. But Collin College definitely uh, is coded in my mind as a rich kid school. But New Haven does not mean she was rich. So I don't know how, like, I don't know her parents' financial situation. I tried to find out. There's just very little published online about this. Here's what I found from, again, uh, this is thefamousdata.com. This was, ri- this was written by an AI. Some fake website. Jasmine was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and nurtured there under the loving care and protection of her hardworking and devoted parents. She was born in the United States, but she is of African-American descent. She grew up in a family of seven, along with four sisters. The only thing I could actually verify is that she was homeschooled until fifth grade. I don't know what her what her class background is, but her class now is this is the gentrifier class. And I don't think the fact that she could have theoretically been born poor changes the fact that if you're moving to, if you're a high-income place, moving to a low-income neighborhood you would technically be a gentrifier. But did the article present her as an, as not? Like, did it, was there any... The article was complaining about gentrifiers, not acknowledging that she is also... Okay, yeah. that's kind of funny. Because, like, those neighbor, the neighbor, these neighborhoods are, that's who is gentrifying is, like, New York Times staffers and stuff. Right. But, I mean, she's been there for 10 years, not- so I totally understand if you've been someplace for 10 years, you feel some ownership over it, and changes can be difficult and hard. I don't like it. I've been in my new town for literally less than a month and i'm looking at new houses going going up thinking can i burn those down without getting caught like i, I get it I mean, look, but that doesn't change the fact that i'm also an outsider yeah I, i've been in my neighborhood a little while and when i see like privileged white people moving in it's just enraging to me when you see your, your high school classmates moving in <laughs> regardless of her background she's a very good writer and she's very accomplished uh she she's won a bunch of awards even worse she was born in the 90s she was born in the fucking 90s. I fucking hate that. I well, I mean, look, but we need to get over that because we're already at a point where some writers were born after 2000, which is just unconscionable. Yeah, in a post-9-11 world. It's horrible. Yeah. 
Um, and she really is a star. And because of that, I highly doubt the paper wanted to lose her because she is a real talent. She's also a big name. Plus, losing her in this particular way guarantees that this would become an issue both inside and outside the paper. Uh, so last week, what happened is that she resigned from her staff job. Again, she has said now that she was forced out. The Times itself reported on this and included an email from Jacob Silverstein to the staff. He is the editor of the Times magazine. And he notes that she broke company policy by signing this open letter in support of Palestine and that it wasn't the first time that she did this. She also signed this other open letter that we did a seven-part series on earlier this year. It was by New York Times contributors, past and present, that called out specific Times employees for their coverage of trans issues. And ha- and hardly any staffers. Like, contributors was, was defined very liberally. Right, like Jude Doyle signed it. Jude, I think, did an infographic once. Jasmine Hughes was one of a very, very small number of actual staffers who signed this letter. Um, anyway, in this email... Jude did, that was a good infographic, though. It was how to murder Matt Brunig. Really <laughs> uh, this is what Silverstein said in the email. While I respect that she has strong convictions... This was a clear violation of the Times policy on on public protest. This policy, which I fully support, is an important part of our commitment to independence. She and I discussed that her desire to stake out this kind of public position and join in public protest isn't compatible with being a journalist at the Times, and we both came to the conclusion that she should resign. So, Jesse, first of all, what what do you think of this Times policy against public protest? And do you think violating it should be a fireable offense? Yeah, I mean, I think this is an unusual example and maybe not a particularly difficult one because it's a really clear policy and she violated it twice. I should say I'm a little bit personally biased and angry here just because like the first letter she signed, the New York Times open letter that was they coordinated with GLAAD to release it, GLAAD released their own letter. A, it just contained so many falsehoods and so much bullshit. I wrote a long thing in my newsletter about it. We can we can link to um, so I just think it's such a shitty thing to denounce other journalists by name unless they uh, – have we had this hypothetical before? Would you ever put your name on something denouncing another journalist? I don't want to make us appear like we have the moral high ground. We're both very bad people. We're open about that. But I, I can't imagine a situation where I would do that. Can you? I have signed one open letter in my life and that will be the only one. I'm, I'm, my career began and ended with signing the Harper's letter. I'm not signing <laughs> – no, I would not do that. I can't think of any – a, a journalist could murder somebody, and I would not sign an open letter against them. Unless it was you, in which case, I would sign the open letter against you. I buried one lead, which is I'm in very – this is very brief, everybody. I'm in uh, D.C. in part to go to an event, and I had the opportunity to meet Salman Rushdie, not Salmon Rushdie, as you always call him. Oh, shut up. And I needed an in, so when I shook his hand, I mentioned the Harper's letter. Katie, guess what I suddenly face to face with Solomon Rushdie started talking about within 20 seconds. Twitter. It's literally Twitter. Wait, did you really do that? I literally started talking about about Twitter because I was- Wait, just, wait no, I, no, no, no. Did you, did, did, so you met him I and met you- him. And you shook his hand and you said, hi, fellow Harper's Letter signatory. No, I said, like, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a writer. I work in, like, free speechy spaces. I, I signed the Harper's Letter. And I forget, I think after that, it was like, okay, then what's going to happen next in the conversation? So I defaulted on the only thing I know anything about, which is Twitter. But he actually engaged a lot and had strong feelings about the importance of ignoring it. Because I think Salman Rushdie realized that I had been through more, like, shit because of what him. I've written than he had as he stood yeah. there with one of his eyeglasses eye. blacked out and a weird little thing hanging yeah. from his um but he had I wish I could remember the phrasing it was phrased like a novelist he said something like 
there's reality. I'm not going to try to do the accent. There's reality and there's shit. <laughs> and you need to learn to ignore shit. He drew a clear binary between reality and shit. And I really appreciate and it. And Twitter is so shit. So anyway, I should have told that story at the top, but that's why Salman Rushdie and I are now best friends. Is that what you do every time you meet somebody, regardless of whether or not they also sign the Harper's letter? Hi, I'm Jesse Single. I sign the Harper's letter. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I do like a takeout order at Starbucks, yeah. I ask them to put Jesse Single... Uh, Harper's letter signatory. Paper, plastic. I signed the Harper's letter. The only thing we had in common, other than all the the oppression we faced. <laughs> okay, what were we talking about? We were talking about the letter. I uh, I would I would I would just. This makes me sound morally self righteous. I'm not. I would not fucking sign a letter denouncing another journalist, and that really enraged me. And I think that makes me dislike the signatories. Frankly, anyway. Uh, I'm a little bit torn on this. I don't, I think it's good that we've like moved past this fake idea of like perfect objectivity among journalists. Nobody's objective. On the other hand, we've definitely overshot the mark in recent mm-hmm. years. And there's been huge fights in the Times, which are ongoing. For now, it appears the forces of old school journalism have sort of won because after that letter, a lot of folks who I think had stayed on the sideline asserted themselves. People can go back and listen to our coverage from, I think, February of the time stuff. Um, I think it's really important that there still be some readouts of like old school. We're going to shoot for the ideal of some level of objectivity, even if it's just we're not going to participate explicitly in activist efforts. And in her case, it's not even like she couldn't express opinions in her magazine articles. It was just don't sign shit. And she violated that twice. That's not a close call, I don't think. Right. In terms of her specific case, to me, this is less a free speech issue than it is just a contract violation. There's policy. She violated the policy. I assume that she... Well, but those two are those two are connected because we've always said free speech isn't just a law. It's also like the norms that prevail... In employment situations. Sure. I'm saying in this case, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's really a gray area. Like she violated a staff policy, not once, but twice. So you can talk about, so we can talk about the merits of the policy and I want to, but in this case, there's a, there's a policy, there's a rule. You break the rule. You're warned. Let's assume she was warned the first time she broke the rule and then she broke the rule again. So I don't find this, that one, that much of a struggle in terms of, um, in terms of her being not fired, but forced out because she broke a rule twice. So you're not going to sign um, my letter denouncing Jake Silverstein, you're saying? I am not. But in terms of the policy itself, I like. I think the Times policy is is necessary in order for the paper to maintain at least the appearance that reporters aren't partisan hacks. But as I've said on this show many times, I also think political speech should be protected, including in employment. And people should generally not lose their jobs for what they do outside of work. But if there's a rule that you can't participate in public protest and you do it once and then you get a talking to and then you do it again to me that's just like you've broken the rule twice uh i do think in terms of the policy like i do think it would be possible to write the policy more narrowly like i think it is absolutely reasonable to demand that reporters themselves political reporters especially not engage in public protest i think it's less reasonable to demand that music reviewers don't engage in public protest and if you look at Jasmine's body of work, she falls somewhere in the middle of those two. Well, a couple of, a couple of responses to that. First of all, the whole you shouldn't be pub- punished at work for the politics you express outside of work is incredibly context dependent. If you are not to be – this will sound classist, but I'll explain in a minute. If you are a Waffle House waitress, I think there should be almost nothing that gets you fired from work because of political ex- opinions you express beyond the walls of Waffle House. If you are a State Department employee working on the China desk, 
Sure. And you express opinions about China that fuck up the government's ability to work on China, of course that should be fireable. So I think it's closer to that category where there are legitimate reasons why there, – there's a million legitimate reasons to restrict employee speech in some jobs. I think we get maddest at situations where you just can't even make a logical – like why should, why should a Waffle House waitress be punished for um, – protesting an abortion clinic or protesting in favor of Planned Parenthood. There's no reason for right. it. It doesn't affect her ability to serve waffles. Right? Well, it depends. Is she serving waffles? It depends what she's doing to right. the waffles, like out of fetuses. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's a conspiracy theory somewhere online. Uh, on, on the other thing, you said Jasmine falls between like a, a music reviewer and like a straight reporter, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Like, she's a staff writer at the magazine, which is independent, but it's basically on the news rather than the opinion side. But she she's allowed to express opinion in her writing in the way a um, a straight news writer can't. And the magazine is editorially independent from from the rest of the paper. All this stuff gets complicated, but but to me, what it comes down to is she could, in theory, write about anything at any time. So it's not like you can say she only writes about this one set of issues and therefore can protest on other stuff. Um, plus, she seems to be like a promiscuous letter signer. Like she has a lot of opinions she wants to express via open letters. And Don't slut shame. I found this to be the weirdest part because Hughes had what is seriously one of the most desirable perches in journalism. Like you and I have been extremely lucky. There's almost no job I would even consider taking for one second in journalism overdoing this podcast in my newsletter. Like, I mean that earnestly. I'm, I feel like I, I drunkenly want a scratch-off ticket. And and I mean this despite your personality and that big scandal about you that hasn't come out yet. But mm-hmm. the only kind of job that would tempt me even a little would be a situation like hers, where you can work at one of the biggest outlets. You have incredible resources. You can write about whatever you want. And the plus side of that is that if you are a human being like she is and you have strong feelings and issue, you can do reporting on it. She could choose to report on aspects of this conflict from a million different angles. I'm sure they would be happy to let her do it. I know within the Times they let people jump around on different subjects. Why not take that route? Why why not use the incredible power and platform you have, which is much more important than putting your name on a piece of fake paper? I mean, she probably should have taken that route and she might still have a job. I wonder if she actually wanted this to come to an head, if she wanted to leave the paper. She must have. There's no, there's just no other rational explanation. She's not a crazy person. You know, I, this sort of reminds me of the, of the way that the stranger used to be back in the day. Somebody would write a piece with an opinion, and if another staffer didn't like it, they could respond to it on the blog, and that was a good way not to just work out, work out arguments, um, but also create content. And then that ethos. By the time I got there in 2017, that ethos was totally gone. So that if I wrote something that somebody had a problem with, instead of responding to it, typically they would complain to the boss or just like seethe privately. Um, but I think you're right. Like if you got, if you have an issue with something, you should report it out rather than signing a public letter about it, especially if that's against policy. Well, one question for you. Do you well, no, no, I was just gonna say one thing real, real, real quick. What you're saying is totally true about that back and forth, but that works in like a bloggy format. That wouldn't, I don't think that would really work at the times unless it's like dueling opinion columns, like as a magazine writer, just the lead time and the effort. So it would be hard. No, but, but my point is that if you want to, if she wanted to write something about the Palestine conflict, she could find an angle and write about that. Of course. Oh, yeah. That's all I was saying. Yeah. Right. She could write about how hummus was stolen from the from the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. I did, did read that read that tweet today. Actually, I think it was falafel, the tweet that I read today. I do have one question for you, though. Do you think 
an opinion writer, a straight someone who writes for the opinion page, whose job is to express their opinions, do you think there should be any... Is it okay if Brett Stevens signs an open letter? <laughs> is it okay for Brett Stevens to sign the pro-Palestinian open letter? Um, I mean, we all know how he feels. I, no, I think... No, I just think there's something different about aligning yourself with an activist effort versus saying this is my opinion as an opinion journalist. I think I think it's a good rule. I think... I think there's like some of these outlets go a little bit too crazy, but I I just find this to be a reasonable rule for for myriad reasons. And yeah, no, if you're an opinion writer, you can literally just say your opinion on use your platform to express your opinion, which is less fraught for various reasons than signing an activist letter or taking part in activism. So no, now like administrators at the Times, ad salespeople, I think they should have perfect freedom to express political opinions outside of work. Uh, on, and on Slack as well. Of course. No, no one should be allowed to... Uh, expressing any political opinion on Slack in a workplace setting should be a capital offense is what I think. Do you um, do you think anything going on here with Jasmine Hughes, who is, I believe, 32, whereas we are uh, 70 and 71 respectively, I believe, do you think any of this is generational? Yeah, I think it's very generational. I mean, a, a lot of old school reporters, especially at places like NPR, and I assume the New York Times as well, don't even vote. I think it's <laughs> like, yeah, I definitely think it's generational. And plus, Jasmine was raised in the social media, in the, the social media era. She's used to public performance in this way that I think old, old school uh, reporters really didn't engage in. What has surprised me the most about I guess it depends how you look at it. Like a lot of the media craziness, which I do think is in some cases dying down. It was either it was launched by Trump, but then another round of it was launched by George Floyd being murdered. Um, and now Hamas. And now Hamas, yes. Now Hamas. Um, God, I'm I'm sounding self righteous on this episode a lot, which I don't like. I tell me how you feel about this. In my twenties, and then in my early thirties, when I really like had a little bit of my initial success as a journalist, who anyone paid attention to. If my boss told me to do something or not do something, and it didn't involve like taking off my pants and closing the door, which you would have done, I would generally do it. Do you feel that way? I was fired from a lot of jobs at that age. <laughs> I realized who I was asking that question to midway. <laughs> but once I became mature enough to realize that I needed to keep jobs, yes, if my boss asked me to do something, I would generally do it. I, I just, this is where I think the generational thing comes in, where there have been so many cases of people like publicly denouncing their boss. I mean, sometimes there's a genuine scandal and you should raise awareness of it. I just, I can't imagine any situation. I guess the closest analogy was when I was at New York Magazine, there were a couple times when my uh, bosses, Jeb Reed and uh, Ben Williams, um, were mad at me because I like, I, my elbows were too sharp on Twitter. And they slacked me or called me in and they didn't threaten to fire me or discipline me. They were just like, chill out on Twitter. And my response was not, no, no I get to tweet whatever right. I want. My response was mortification totally. that I totally. had done something to make my bosses say that to me. And it, and it's, there's just something there where I, I think it's generational. We, we, <laughs> you need to be a little bit of a team player. Journalism gives you a huge amount of freedom to like be iconoclastic and, report shit that should be known and drag it out into the light. But like, if you're part of a big institution, if you're incredibly lucky, and you're in a job hundreds or thousands mm -hmm. of people would like to have, this is a very small price to pay to to get to do one of the coolest jobs in the world. That's my opinion on it. 
Yeah, I don't really see this case as cancel culture run amok. Although, if Brett Stevens signed an open letter supporting Israel and wasn't fired, we might have uh, we might have to talk about this again. Exactly. Uh, yeah, this one's pretty open and shut. And I, I mean, I think like the guild is getting involved, and there's you know Jasmine's trying to argue that this was unfair. But again, I would just go back to like you're not really being asked to do that much. You're, you're like, here's an amazing job anyone would kill for. All you have to do is not sign things about stuff you could also write about if you want to. I mean, I I, I, I shouldn't oversimplify that because like, it's, there's a chance she goes to her editors and she's like, I want to write about Gaza. They're like, no, it's not your area we're covered. But the point is she has a lot of freedom and um, I think it's a small price to pray. Pray. Or pay. I do think that signing an open letter condemning your colleagues for their actually very good coverage, it's so much worse. So much worse. That, no, that's fucking incredibly shitty. Yeah, I'm talking more about the second one. That's, I, I mean, I, I would not mind firing someone or – no, I shouldn't say that. You should be punished if you sign an open letter condemning your colleagues at your organization just because of the damage that does to the institution. Spank them. Suspend them. I mean, that's Get the paddle out. But, Make them bend over. I'm Spank not, them. Uh, no, this is uh, so people don't know this, but when you and I talk about our own personnel issues with our with our, our helpers producers, you always want to spank them, and I'm like, that's not legal, and that would lead to a big scandal. But you're really obsessed with this. But we can we can talk about that in another episode. He he likes it. Trace, <laughs> he's asking for it when he dresses up like that. Right? Come on, he's got this short fursuit on. <laughs> He is, I mean, because he's a good boy, but sometimes he's a bad, bad boy. boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, should we do housekeeping, maybe? Let's do it, yeah. First, an ad. Katie, have you ever browsed in incognito mode? Are you following me? No, no. Who told you that? Anyway, incognito mode is probably not as incognito as you think. And why would it be? Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. And Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. Not me, Katie, Google. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense? Incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online and avoid entities like Google and possibly me? You use ExpressVPN, like I do. Turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. It's terrifying. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN users. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Katie, how cute would that be if we had the same IP address? Disgusting. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. And I actually used it this summer on a smart TV, no lie. All you have to do- What were you doing? I was in Germany. I want to watch Netflix. Mm. Lay off me. Lay off mm. me. It wasn't any mm. weird German stuff. It was just normal American sure. Netflix from Germany. I believe All that. you have mm -hmm. to do- is tap one button for instant protection on phone, laptop, or smart TV. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash reported and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash reported. Go to expressvpn.com slash reported to learn more and possibly have the same IP address as me and Katie. We don't have the same IP address. I'd like to think we do. Okay, housekeeping.
we're a podcast blockedreporter.org you can sign up to become a premium subscriber for just five dollars a month and up you get three extra episodes a month join an amazing community of um what are we at between twelve and thirteen thousand people, approaching thirteen thousand. Uh, what's our next? Do we know what our next primo is about? Can we tease it? Oh, it's going to talk about uh, yeah, Phil Lilly, the AGP, the dress. That'll be part of it. Don't worry, that won't be the whole thing. This is going to be the dress part too. This is basically the dress part. Too. Do you see yellow and gold? He did look, do you look, see blue? The guy looked good, and I liked him. Uh, but I won't reveal anything more than that. Um, you can also go to blockedreported.reddit.com for our subreddit. My UCLA talk is up. There's video of it if people want to see all the horrible things I said harming students and barpodmerch.com. And please, please, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps our visibility and representation matters as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it does. Anything else for housekeeping? Blockedandreported.org. Blockedandreported.org. All right, Jesse, you ready to move on? Let's do it. Okay. Until a couple weeks ago, how familiar were you with Buffy St. Marie? I was unfamiliar with Buffy St. Marie. God, you Philistine. Don't you have parents who are hippies? No, I just, I, I, dude, the extent to which people ask, have you heard of like, they'll be like, have you heard of Taylor Swift? And I'm like, I, something about football. I'm just not, I haven't been, had a good run of culture lately. Okay. So Buffy St. Marie is an 82 year old singer, songwriter, very famous, especially in Canada. She came up in the Greenwich Village music scene in the sixties. And she was contemporaries with people like Pete Seeger, Seeger, Johnny Cash, Leonard Cohen. Uh, In 1964, she was named Billboard's best new artist. So she's been very successful in her musical career, especially as a songwriter. And she's probably equally well-known for her activism, particularly around indigenous issues. So, for instance, she organized an occupation of Alcatraz to protest the treatment of Native Americans, etc. And her story is that she was born on a reserve in Saskatchewan, Canada, to Cree parents. And that as a toddler, she, and the story sort of shifts, but one of the stories is that she was, as a toddler, she was taken from her parents as part does of- that, Does that sort of blow, blow the cover of what you're going to say, or do you think that's okay? That the story shifts. I mean, I think people know what I'm going to say. This is a pretty famous story at this point. Okay, okay, that's fine. I'm going to leave that in. Sure. As a toddler, she was taken from her parents, or she says that she was taken from her parents as part of a government child welfare policy and was adopted by a white couple named Albert and Winifred Santa Maria and raised outside of Boston. So basically, she's claimed that she was part of what is called the 60s scoop, as in scoop up indigenous kids and place them with white families. This is a real thing that happened. It's estimated that 20,000 First Nations kids in Canada were taken from their homes between the 1950s and 1980s, and they were often separated from their siblings in order to sever all ties from their culture. A lot of these kids were never told what happened to them. Uh, I assume Anglo families who participated in this sort of government-approved kidnapping thought they were saving these children from uh, from families that couldn't take care for them, take care of them. But it's obviously a very dark part of Canadian history, and one that most of us, I think, would look back on today in horror. So Buffy Saint Marie has claimed that she's part of this program, and she's long been a Native icon. She says that as a young adult, she was. Uh, adopted into a Cree family, and that's been a huge part of her identity for years. Like, she was the first Indigenous person to win an Oscar, the first Indigenous person on Sesame Street. She received the Order of Canada, which is the nation's highest honor. She's won Juno Awards, honorary degrees. She got her own stamp recently, and she's also won awards and honors specifically for Indigenous people. But we found out recently that her backstory appears to be bullshit, and she might not be Native at all. 
That's not good. That's my take. Another bold take by Jesse. Okay, so this story was broken by the CBC. Uh, They released a 40-minute documentary about Buffy St. Marie's origins, and there are just piles and piles of evidence in this documentary, like home movies from her childhood that they got from her very Anglo-looking niece, who says that Buffy wasn't adopted and that the family has always been baffled by her claims of indigenous ancestry. And that some of her relatives have been trying to expose her since 1964. They did such a shitty job. They've been trying since 1964. Well, this was before the internet when you published something in a paper wouldn't go viral. It would just be published in the paper. Yeah. So they got a clip from a a newspaper uh, from then where the uncle says that she's got no Indian blood. Her brother was also writing newspapers telling them she was white. They got copies of those letters as well, as well as a 1975 letter from a lawyer representing Buffy threatening to sue that same brother if he didn't shut up about this. And they got a handwritten letter from Buffy to her brother saying that if he ever tried this again, she would expose him as a sexual predator, which she did later in life after he died. Jesus. Yeah. We I assume that that we think that that's false given everything or do we have no idea well his daughter spoke on the documentary and she says it's false he denied it his daughter denied it i don't know i'm not taking buffy's word for that okay anyway continue sorry yeah i don't think we should take her considering everything we know now i don't think we should really take her word for anything uh her allegedly adoptive sister so the woman she has said was her adoptive sister even took a dna test which proved that she was related to buffy's son which shows that buffy was not adopted and that her ancestry is completely European. So her father was the son of Italian immigrants. Her mother her, could trace her ancestry back to the Mayflower. So she's white, but she does pass as native. Jesse, I put a photo of her in our notes. Uh, please describe. Me. <laughs> I mean, this just get out a your yeah, get out your Pantone color clips. My calipers. I mean, this just goes to race being dumb, which is a constant theme of our show. It is a woman dressed in. What I would say is is stereotypically native gear with uh, hair braids. I associate with native and First Nations people, uh, and she has her, dark- her shirt. It could also be something that you got at Forever Twenty One. Also true. It could be native, but and, it could be. Forever. And her hair is is dark, like that of billions of people worldwide. So yes, yeah, she looks native, but that is a costume because racist yeah. stuff. And you can see why people would assume that she's native, right? Like, she does look native. But the thing is, a lot of European people and non-European people, Arabs, could pass for native. Italians, Greek, Spanish. I mean, if you put feather earrings on a Kardashian, they could look native, too. Can I say something slightly problematic? Yeah, please do. When I was in I was in Mexico City earlier this year, and it is just interesting in thinking about race. Like, Mexico City has, like, people from lots of different areas obviously the spanish came and uh treated everyone really well and then there was intermarriaging interchildren but there's like some people who could they look vaguely like some kind of asian because they were the first folks to come across the bering land Strait, and then they ended up in south it's all we're all Uh, that's very problematic i know you cannot acknowledge the the bering Strait. yes look jesse these people have been here since time immemorial i'm sorry since the their aztec sun god invent no but and 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 mexicans i think themselves are like really interested in their own ancestry because it's a mishmash but like it's all everyone's a mix of everything different people resemble one another and to essentialize this as like this is this race this is this race is a little bit dumb i mean a lot of russians look very very Asian, like in, like East Asian. I thought you were gonna say cold. I thought you were gonna say cold. No, they look very they very East Asian. Cold. You know, a lot of a lot of Alaskans look very very Asian. 
race is dumb, but yes, it's lots of yeah. Anyway, Camille, Camille Foster. Uh, if I didn't know better, I would say he could pass as black. Even <laughs> good thing you know better. So the CBC documentary features a, a native woman named Jacqueline Keeler, who really has made it her mission to expose fake Indians or pretendians, as they say. Her biggest scoop so far. These are like modern day Nazi hunters. <laughs> Her biggest scoop so far was her story about Sachin Littlefeather, who was the activist who became famous when she refused an Oscar on Marlon Brando's behalf in 1973 at the Academy Awards. And after she died, her sisters crashed the funeral funeral to out her as a secret Mexican. Uh, although, of course, there are, you know, some Mexicans also have indigenous ancestry. Anyway, Keeler wrote about this in the San Francisco Chronicle, and we'll link to that piece in the show notes. The piece really does show Keeler's principles. Like, she's very, very keen on the idea of blood quantum and officially documenting tribal connections in order to determine who is a real Indian and who is not. And she's a very- Blood, blood quantum, meaning she she reduces this to if you have traceable indigenous blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And she's a very polarizing figure in Native circles. We'll come back to that shortly. But in this case, she says in the CBC documentary that she was watching a PBS documentary about Buffy St. Marie and alarm bells started to go off. What kind of uh, alarm bells? Okay, well, so Buffy never said that she actually dug into her own ancestry and found her birth family, for, for one. So her ties were very unspecific. She claims that there are no records of her birth because record keeping was poor at the time and maybe they'd been destroyed. But the Saskatchewan government said that wasn't true. Record keeping was actually quite good. And Keeler says that this is a common narrative among pretendians, basically using ignorance about record keeping to bolster their claims. And Keeler herself was very easily able to find St. Marie's actual birth records, which of course said that she was born white in Massachusetts. So Buffy St. Marie has been claiming for decades that she has no birth certificate, but the CBC reporter actually went to the town hall in Stoneham, Massachusetts, where she was born, actually born, got her original birth certificate, and it says that Beverly Santa Maria was born in 1941 and that she was white. So not only is she not indigenous, this is even worse, she's not even Canadian. Ugh. Huge scandal. I know. If I was born in Stoneham, I'd make some other shit up too. <laughs> so when contacted by the CBC, Buffy St. Marie's lawyer said that Kids who were adopted in Massachusetts were often issued new birth certificates, but the archivist who was in charge of birth certificates in this town in Stoneham said that's not true in her case. For one, they have the signature of the doctor who delivered her, and for another, they're in sequential order, so this would not have been a reissuing. Uh, this would have been a, an original birth certificate. And they also found other records, the CBC, including a life insurance policy her dad took out on her when she was little, the 1950 census that says she was white and born in Massachusetts. There's some military records. They found her 1980 wedding certificate, which she herself signed and said that she was born in Massachusetts in 1941. And this directly contradicts her repeated claims that she was born in Canada and that she didn't even know her own birthday. So the reporting is very thorough. Uh, they found the first published mention of her being Indian it wasn't until 1961. And at first, the papers were calling her Algonquin and then later Mi'kmaq and then Cree. And that's the identity that she stuck with. Okay. So I take it she doesn't have any ties to any of these groups? She doesn't have blood ties, but she does have real relationships to the Cree. So she started claiming to be native in the 1960s. And around that time, she went to this powwow and met a guy named Emil Piapot. He was the son of a famous Cree chief. And Buffy says that she was told that he and his wife may have been her long lost parents. She was really inconsistent in her story, but she did develop very close connection with this family, and they did formally adopt her in this very traditional process. 
Now, she has both said that she is blood-related to them and she's not blood-related to them at various times. Her, her story really has shifted a lot. Like, she's said that her mother died during childbirth. She's also said that her mother gave her away because she wasn't able to care for her. And she's also said that she was forcibly taken from her family during the 60s scoop, which I mentioned earlier. But the CBC points out that the 60s scoop started in 1951 and she was born a decade earlier. But regardless, she really does have a very close relationship with the Cree Peabots. All right. That being said, it sounds like the CBC's reporting is like pretty thorough and like every it sounds bulletproof based on how you described it to me. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, they got DNA tests. They have the paperwork and her, her son who is Indian on his father's side, he confirmed this on Facebook. He said that his mom was a big-nosed Italian girl in the 1950s when that was not a popular thing to be. So, you know, you say you're Indian and all of a sudden it's kind of cool and exotic. Is it? In the 50s? Do you think that was... Which was... Okay, you continue. I don't... I have no standing here. It certainly did... Was better for her career. Okay, so how has Buffy St. Clair responded to this wave of uh, journalism? Okay, so she posted this video on Facebook. Hi, everybody. It's Buffy here. I want to update you on some questions that are going to be raised in the media about my truth and my ancestry, and I want to ensure you hear it from me first. For 60 years, I've been sharing my story as I know it. I'm an artist, an activist, a mom, a survivor, and a proud member of the Native community with deep roots in Canada. And I count myself lucky to have had two families to love, a growing up family who were wonderful, and my Pipot family who were also wonderful. But there are also many things I don't know, which I've always been honest about. I don't know where I'm from, who my birth parents are, or how I ended up a, a misfit in a typical white Christian New England town. But I realized decades ago that I would never have the answer to these questions. My growing up mom, who was proud to be part Mi'kmaq, told me many things, including that I was adopted and that I was native. And later in life, as an adult, she also told me some things that I've never shared out of respect for her, that I hate sharing now, including that I may have been born on the wrong side of the blanket. This was her story, and it has never been my place to share it. When I left home at 17, I began to explore the world and who I was on my own. I visited communities as an entertainer that nobody else would go to. They didn't even know they existed. I told stories from lived experiences that no one else would, and I championed causes that few others even knew about. They didn't show up. I also found a new family, a chosen family. And they took me in as an adult in accordance with Cree law and traditions, and they claim me as their own. This has been and always will be my truth. Now I've taken a step away from performing for my health, but at the same time, there are those who wish to question me. I can only think of all those I love and all those who see themselves in my story, my chosen family, my growing up family, indigenous people who have lost their heritage and survivors of abuse who have had their stories questioned. These questions hurt me, they still do, but they also hurt others. They're questions I've struggled with my whole life. So what can I say? I know who I am, I know who I love and who loves me. And I know who claims me. 
And to those who question my truth, I say with love, I know who I am. The comments are funny because the first one is, Dear Buffy, haters gonna hate. Let them go so that they no longer exist. The real people believe you and believe in you. That got four responses. The second one, take the test. 156 responses. (laughs) I was hoping she'd be like a super stereotypical Bostonian. Like, dude, it's wicked queer that people are raising these questions (laughs) about my ancestry. Um, Okay, but what does wrong side of the blanket mean? So basically born out of wedlock or through an affair. Uh, She also says that her mother claimed to be part Mi'kmaq. That's a tribe in the eastern U.S. I guess it's entirely possible that her mom was a bit of a fantasist and that Buffy's entire Indian shtick came from that, sort of like Elizabeth Warren, who claimed to be Indian because apparently her grandmother claimed to be Indian. But it's also possible that she's just been lying for 60 years. Uh, She also posted a long statement on Twitter. And again, she said in that that her brother sexually abused her. We'll post a link to that in the show notes. And at this point, she's just not getting many defenders, with some very notable exceptions. For one, her Cree family. Huh. I'm going to absolutely butcher this name. Uh, Tawanis Piapot, that's the granddo- the great-granddaughter of Emil Piapot. She's been really active in defending Buffy and criticizing the CBC. She says the report has been traumatic for her family. And she says that the CBC relying on Buffy's possibly adopted, possibly biological family is hugely problematic, especially because, you know, she says she was abused by a member of that same family. They also didn't interview any Cree people. She says Buffy is her auntie, etc. And in a statement, the family said, quote, The accusations which are about to be made, so this was before it came out, the accusations which are about to be made of our auntie Buffy are hurtful, ignorant, colonial, and racist. Colonial. So, yeah. So they're deeply distrustful of the documentary, and this is a common theme in many Native reactions. First Nations people in Canada are particularly wary of birth certificates due to the 60 scoop because in many cases they were given falsified birth certificates. There's a thread on the Indian Country subreddit. Posters are very skeptical of both the birth certificates and the DNA test because these at-home DNA tests are really not great tools for identifying ethnic heritage. Uh, Tawanis also shared this video on Facebook. This is a First Nations woman named Saquon Wabaska. Hey folks, I have to chime in about Buffy. And I want to tell you my story. Because it's completely relevant and totally related. And uh, everything that's going on is totally harming and hurtful. So uh, I was born many years ago. And the story I grew up believing and the story that I grew up being told by my parents who are white, who love me and who raised me, and I love them too, um, they told me that I was put up for adoption by my 19-year-old birth mom because she couldn't take care of me. And that's it. And they used the information on the non-identifying information about the biological family members as their basis. Um, When I was 31, 32, I can't remember, over 20 years ago, um, I went through family reunification and what I discovered was that I was not put up for adoption. In fact, Mama Rose was told that I was stillborn and I was stolen and put into foster care, and then mom and dad adopted me. And um, the documentation to prove any of that is all over the place. So my birth certificate reflects that I was born to my adopted parents, 
it says that it says that my parents are white and that my brothers are white which they are and they are and that i was born to them my okay so she clearly has like some defenders within these communities who buy aspects of her story and the the fuzziness of being born uh, raised by adoptive parents Right. And a birth certificate clearly is not necessarily proof positive of anything. At least it wasn't in that woman's case. But in Buffy's case, because it's numbered in a sequence, probably accurate. Plus, there's all of the other evidence. But some people are still skeptical, especially because the journalists involved in the project weren't indigenous. But I was a bit surprised to find out how much resistance there is to this reporting within Indian circles. And what it seems to come down to is partly because Buffy St. Marie, she might be a pretendian, but she's also done a lot of good. She's done a lot for awareness of Native issues. She's funded a foundation for Native education. And so to some, that outweighs her invented backstory. Huh. So she's a, a white devil, but she's our, our white devil. Exactly. Um, plus, there's the bigger issue of outing pretendians in the first place, which not all Natives are okay with. I mean, obviously, some are. Jacqueline Keeler, for instance, who was featured in the documentary, She's this really is her mission in life to out race fakers. Uh, in 2021, she published a Google Doc containing 200 names of alleged pretendians, ranging from famous people like Johnny Depp or Elizabeth Warren to randos with insufficient Native paperwork. And this was well received by lovers of online drama. Uh, especially those who want to take down white women, but it got a very chilly reception within the Native community, and there were some open letters condemning it. One open letter said, quote, Keeler's list lacks documentation, is libelous, and includes dozens of people who are recognized by their tribes and communities as kin and contributing members of their communities. They say that she's using a, quote, extractive and violent tool of the colonizer to slander and sow discord. And I found that really interesting because I had naively assumed that Indians would be on board with outing pretendians, but it turns out that some of them really are not. And it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, who counts as an Indian can be a muddy concept in the first place, not just because of issues with record keeping and enrollment and de-enrollment, but also because different tribes and nations and clans have different requirements for citizenship. Plus, some tribes are not even federally recognized. So like the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina, they've been trying to get federal recognition since the 19th century. The Duwamish in Seattle, they were recognized in 2001 until George Bush revoked their recognition. So there's this whole, there's that whole complication. And in this case, you have Jacqueline Keeler and a bunch of white journalists at the CBC saying that this woman who really was adopted by a Cree family isn't really Native. You can see why to some people that would feel a little gross, right? Yeah. This is interesting to me. It reminds me a little bit of of one of the stories I did at New York Magazine. Um, I, I reported on a sociologist named Alice Goffman. She was an ethnographer. She'd written a book called On the Run about basically sort of embedding herself in the lives of these young black men in West Philadelphia. Um, she was accused of basically making stuff up or embellishing it, depending on who you ask. There was also this really strong racial component because uh, she's white, not to mention the son of Irving Goffman, who's like one of the most legendary sociologists ever. Uh, I ended up going to Philly and tracking down her anonymous subjects because she did not do a great job anonymizing them. Um, and there was this really interesting divide where all these academic types were so mad at Goffman and it was just very clear she'd done stuff really wrong. And it for some of them, it didn't even matter if she'd made stuff up, just being sort of a white interloper telling other people's stories. When I tracked down her subjects, they basically viewed her as family. I mean, they they really loved her. And it was a huge class divide because these were not for the most – I mean, it's complicated. One of the guys I met had had some success. But like 
I sat with this like this older black woman who did not have money and who loved Alice and she did not recognize any of these claims that Goffman had done anything wrong. Um, and, and coincidentally, or as an aside, they also confirmed, I wasn't able to confirm all of Goffman's claims, but like some of the craziest ones. And to me, if you can confirm someone's craziest claims, that makes it less likely they were lying or embellishing about other stuff. But yeah, there's often huge divides between how like communities that maybe aren't that well represented or are represented by non-representative members, if that makes sense, how they feel about stuff that seems obvious to outsiders. Uh, that's really interesting. And for Buffy St. Marie, you know, her her Cree family, her Piafot family, they have adopted her. And to her, that means she is one of them, regardless of whether or not her uh, her, her DNA test results say that she is or is an Indian. Uh, and that does, I think, again, go to show that of stupid races. Uh, we also heard from a Métis listener who really educated me on the nuances of this issue. And he also said, quote, there's even a new term that has service for people like Keeler, that's Jacqueline Keeler, who make it their mission to expose pretendians. They are being called Corindians. <laughs> uh, he sent us a link to a parody website, corindian.com. Jesse, take a look at this. <laughs> says federal blood quantum investigations, FBQI with like a fake logo. We seek to expose people's blood quantum. Got a grudge? Email us. Oh man. Okay, and then they have all these fake names like Kendian Leroux, associate professor, wrote a book based on internet forum post, Corendian Tallbear, associate professor, single polyamorous, survivor of pretendian panic. There's this is very interesting. There's so many layers to this, to just like affiliation and, and tribal connections, both in the formal and informal senses. This is it's fascinating that there's so much controversy over whether outing these folks is uh, justified or a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. And the other reason Keeler is a polarizing figure is that she herself has a very problematic history. Jessica, the 80s baby, found a document that a native artist named Kayla Shaggy made that catalogs some of Keeler's past sins. So like the first entry goes back to 2012 when she shared a link to a Jezebel article with a problematic headline. Jesse, I've got screenshots here. Please read this tweet verbatim. Sure, I'd love to. Jacqueline Keeler, November 10th, 2012, racism, colon, racist teen forced to answer for tweets about the N-word president. I said verbatim. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say that. Um, but, okay, this is that thing where back in 2012, you could you could mention that word rather than use it as a slur, but now we're pretending that it's racist to have tweeted an actual Jezebel headline. Is that the idea? Exactly. And I just want to pause here for a second. Like, she literally just posted links to these articles, which did, in fact, use the unredacted N-word in the headline. I went back and found the article, and we found out that Jezebel is, sh- is shuddering yesterday. So uh, I found it um, probably before it gets scrubbed from the internet. The article is by Tracy Egan Morrissey. I just have to read you the opening paragraph. There was an abundance of hate speech on Twitter after Obama's re-election, with people hurling violent and racial epithets. Many of those tweeters were teenagers whose public Twitter accounts feature their real names and advertise their participation in sports programs at their respective high schools. Calls were placed to the principals and superintendents of those schools to find out how calling the president or any person of color, for that matter, a N-word, it says the N-word, and a monkey jibes with their student conduct code of ethics. Tracy Egan Morrissey literally called school administrators to tell on students, which is doubly hilarious considering that 10 years later, uttering that word in any context, or even arguing that in some context it should be okay to utter the word, would become a cancelable offense. And it's triply hilarious if you know that Tracy Egan Morrissey was later cancelled herself for various isms, including wearing a Confederate flag bikini, ironically. And then in 2020, she did this 
absolutely groveling podcast and promised to do better because of her guilt over this Confederate flag bikini. And then she was going to donate some money to black trans hookers or something like that. So she's probably thrilled to find out that Jezebel is closing because potentially her, her use of the actual N-word in, uh, in, her, in her work on Jezebel will be erased from the internet. Anyway. I don't think, I think the, I bet the archives will stay up. There'll be plenty of records of this. Don't worry. <laughs> I fucking hope so. Um, anyway, my, how things have changed. So back to Keeler. She also, so that was her first sin, was that she published a link. It was just to this, tweeting a headline of, that was at the time. Tweeting exactly. a headline, okay. no commentary. A headline that was like an anti racist headline. Mm-hmm. A headline about a reporter calling principals to tell on students. It's just crazy that people fall for this because it was obviously the case that in 2012, an outlet like Jezebel could use Jezebel, Jezebel could use that word. It's just, I just, the, the fake outrage is weird. That Anyway, I don't know. You don't seem outraged enough that a reporter called principals. Called kids, yeah. And, yes. And then, well, and then in the article, she, if memory serves, do they actually give the kids full names to like try to ruin their lives or no? Yes, their names and the schools where they went. <sighs> I, I, look, obviously it's horrible to call, but 15 and 16 year olds or whatever, I just, I wouldn't blow them up for anything short of murder or rape, I don't think. You wouldn't send the open letter? I would not send the open letter. Uh, let's let's Google one of these kids. Okay, the first one. Oh, he now owns a lawn and tree service. Or maybe he's a doctor. It's <laughs> a big range. There's of, two. Okay, I don't want to draw any further attention to, to this. Okay, so back to Keeler. She, according to the list, she also once advocated wearing blackface to a Oklahoma City Thunders game to shame Kevin Durant for supporting the NFL team formerly known as the Redskins. Uh, according, yes. What? That seems sort of roundabout. <laughs> yes. As the woman who compiled this this shit list wrote, this was, quote, transparently anti-black behavior. And then in 2015, Keeler tweeted, quote, natives have worse outcomes than blacks by every measure, which it's probably true, but is still more proof of her anti-black racism, et cetera. <laughs> so Keeler, she also, so there's that whole list of her problematic behavior. She does spend a lot of time gatekeeping nativeness. So, for instance, she said that Cherokee mostly look white and have white privilege and that anyone with colonial Spanish ancestors can't claim to be native. Many people, maybe more so non-natives, love the drama, but within the native community, she's a very polarizing figure. Seems that way, yeah. Okay, of course, there are some natives who are on Keeler's side, or even if they have issues with her... They do support unmasking pretendians. Some Indians are really fucking pissed at Buffy St. Marie and others who do this, I think understandably. Sherman Alexi wrote about the Buffy St. Marie business on his substack. He said, some of you might believe that pretendianism isn't a serious issue, but it's another form of colonialism. There are currently dozens of pretendians thriving in academia, music, literature, and film. There are pretendians currently cast as Indians in TV and movie shows that you might watch and enjoy. Pretendians are replacing real Indians when it comes to jobs, opportunities, awards, and acclaim. Uh, He also notes that he's helped unmask pretendians as well. He doesn't mention this in the piece, but he helped with uh, my former colleague who unmasked John Smeltzer. He was a writer. Uh, This was in 2017. Alexi was quoted in that piece. Uh, I reached out to him and he pointed out something I hadn't really thought about, which is that the consequence for race faking blackness is way higher than it is for race faking Indianness. Like the two most famous black black race fakers, Rachel Dolezal, everyone probably remembers, and Jessica Krug. Do you remember her? I do. This was, she also went by the name Jess La Bombe, <laughs> Jess La Bombe. Bombalera. Yeah. She was a Jewish woman from Kansas who faked being Afro-Caribbean. That, okay, that should be exotic enough. A Jew from Kansas? True. That should true. be all you need. 
they are both persona non grata. They both lost their jobs. Dolezal at the NAACP and Krug from George Washington University. And they face extreme social consequences. Dolezal is basically unemployable, although I think she still might be uh, braiding black women's hair in Spokane. Apparently, she's really good at it. And she sells her- Wait, wait, yeah. wait. Hold on. I This is unbelievable that we've never had this idea before. You hire a film crew. You grow your hair out. You get your hair braided in a very appropriative style by- Dolezal. How viral would that go? Why don't you do it? Because I don't live there. It would take a flight. You're right there. I don't live there either. You can drive uh, to- Do you know where Spokane is? It's in Washington. It's across the state. I know, but Katie, please, please, please get your hair black Look, braided I, by Rachel Dolezal. No. Please. Okay. I bought her art. I feel like I've supported her enough. I literally bought her art. Sound off in comments if you want Katie to get her hair braided by Rachel Dolezal. That's all I'll say. Sound off in comments if you think Jesse should. I already bought her art. I have supported this woman. I am her patron. Anyway- the Britannians for sure face consequences, but this is what Sherman said in his email to me. Quote, there have been numerous Britannians who've been outed and they've lost almost nothing. They haven't lost their jobs and not their social professional standings in the white world. Even now, during Native American Month, there are lists in major magazines and major websites of Native authors that you should read, and all of these lists contain at least one Pretendian. There's a recent well-selling anthology of Native literature that includes at least five confirmed or suspected Pretendians. Would black writers let such a publication happen without comment if it contained even one Rachel Dolezal? So why do pretendians get away with it when other race fakers don't? He says it's because there's this pervasive idea that Indian identity is only about loss and, and disconnection. Quote, the non-Indian world has long assumed that Indians have lost everything, have lost all connection with our cultural past. That's not true, but pretendians portray and fictionalize themselves as disconnected Indians who have fought epic battles and undertaken epic journeys to reclaim their Indianness. He also said that pretendians get away with it because, quote, they invariably espouse leftist politics, leftist white politics. Thus, you have supposed Indians flattering white leftists who think they're political brethren with people who are a combo of Geronimo and Bernie Sanders. How could a proper white leftist not fall in love with that imaginary creation? It's, I mean, it's, it's similar to how white liberals and leftists choose which black figures to develop unhealthy parasocial relationships with it. It's like the, the sort yeah. of you know, more uh, radical chic ones who talk about America being the worst place ever, original sin. Yeah, there's some similar dynamics here across different racial groups. I also think uh, one dynamic here is that a lot of white people and black people, for that matter, claim to be like a 16th Cherokee or whatever, because there's mother's mother's mother said that her grandmother's mother's mother was part Cherokee. Yeah. And most of them probably genuinely believe it or believed it because they wanted to. So it's not necessarily inten intentional race faking like the Buffy St. Marie story, but it's happenstance race faking. Yeah, it, It's also just like, I think. A lot of families do this. You tell families or friend, oh, on my mom's side, I'm actually one-eighth Spanish. Like, it's probably not that unusual. So in Oklahoma or whatever, it's probably often true and often harmless because you're not, like, getting a job because you're 116th Cherokee. Yeah, so if anybody uh, has proof that Jesse Single is not actually a Jewish gamer from Boston, please let me know. I look forward to the digging. You will all do. Uh, thank you for that, Katie. This has been Blocked and Reported. As always, we are produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains, who is a good boy, and Jessica the 80s baby. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, we can save ourselves a lot of trouble in the future if you just sign my open letter preemptively denouncing anyone who ever signs any open letter about anything. And I'm Katie Herzog. And if you happen to come across a 1993 photo of me wearing a headdress and feather earrings, I was not dressed as an Indian. I was dressed as Buffy St. Marie. <laughs> <laughs>